He says things like, I never loved anyone like I did John Bonet, and yet I let her slip and her head bashed in half and I watched her die. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. This is our fourth and final episode of the series on the murder of six-year-old John Bonet Ramsey on Christmas morning in 1996. If you haven't listened to the first three parts of this yet, they are episodes 31, 32, and 33. We now rejoin your regularly scheduled programming already in progress. You know, if you believe both of them, then it's it's super problematic, right? Because nobody's actually following the evidence. Both sides are, are kind of tied to a theory that they just don't want to give up on. And the outside people that have looked at this after the fact, they're all coming to different conclusions as well. Right. So in just talking through some of the things that are certainly troubling, and you started to kind of get on this earlier, right? You're like... What's really troubling is there's this little six-year-old girl who went to bed Christmas night and was brutalized and murdered. That's the worst part. You're not wrong. Very clearly, that's the worst part. And it's sad that, you know, here we are, we're, what, 20, 27 years down the road. In some ways, it seems like no closer, but there have been some recent murmurings in the case. It seems like there's been some DNA testing that's been done. One would hope that there is some of that genetic genealogy DNA type stuff. I think that is the thing that really offers some promise that hasn't been here in five, ten years ago. Um, that is a newer thing. That's how they call it the Gold State Killer. Uh, it's been used and it's being used to do all kinds of things. And so I think in this case... Well, I mean, it opens up a whole nother ocean of information that until now has been closed off. So right. That, so that's a plus. Where? What's the status of the Ramsey family? I think in that letter, it sounded like, did Patsy Ramsey pass? Yes. So the letter was sent to John in 2008. Patsy Ramsey died from ovarian cancer in 2006. So 10 years after John Bonet died, Patsy died. Oh, right. Uh, she was concerned about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, and it's it's so sad because, well, we had talked in the beginning, right, about how the beauty pageant thing was this area where Patsy was excited to connect with John Bonet because she was concerned that her cancer would come back, and you know her time with her was limited, not realizing that her time with her was limited, but in in, in a whole other, right, unimaginable way. So Patsy has since passed. John is still alive, and as of this recording, he, by appearances, and I have no reason to think otherwise, but I know the people who think you know he's somehow involved will argue with me, but he seems to be continuing to advocate for his daughter's murder to be solved. Um, he, he's even, in the last couple years, uh, he's been on some TV shows, he's spoken to news outlets, he wrote a letter to uh, Colorado's governor and had a meeting with the governor, and it's seeking to have the case solved, which, you know, it makes you wonder if John's involved in this case, wouldn't he just sort of ride off into the sunset and disappear? You would certainly think that, yeah, if he was involved or this was any one of those theories about Burke did it and the parents covered it up or Patsy did it and John covered it up, you would think that they would want this to just be quiet and in the dark. And like one of those people said in there, Ramsey's didn't want this to be they didn't want the killer to be found well if that's true then why is he stirring it up but you know who knows that you could argue that that's just a, a cover when he knows through political influence or power or whatever that he's put the brakes on it in reality you can do these things in public and i'm not saying that's what he's doing i don't know the man but i've certainly seen that kind of shenanigans out of, out of people so i can see the argument both ways what about uh old uh, burke so uh, Burke has essentially kind of just become somewhat of a recluse. 
my understanding is he's a, he's like a software engineer. He does like a remote work technology type job. And uh, there's not a whole lot you know about him. He did an interview with Dr. Phil around the same time that this CBS series came out. And uh, whenever he did that exclusive with Dr. Phil, uh, you know, Dr. Phil, of course, asked him all the questions. You know, did you kill your sister? Did you do this? Did you do that? What about this? And, you know, he denied any involvement, any knowledge. And uh, what he said pretty well lined up with what has been sort of the knowns from the Ramsey family and, and what's been reported all along there wasn't anything you know there weren't any crazy revelations out of that interview yeah which you wouldn't expect but i can understand why he'd be a recluse if you've been since you were nine or ten years old publicly accused of murdering your sister yeah and that plagues your entire childhood on top of the fact that your sister's been murdered in your home add to that the stress that your parents are under because of this and that your mother then dies of ovarian cancer i can't imagine that's I thought Burke had a rough day that, you know, Christmas Day, he only had 30 minutes to play with his toys before he had to go run around. But, you know, this this kid doesn't sound like he had an innocent go of it. And go ahead, you know, if any of the listeners want to light me up because he's the uh, the pineapple maglite killer, well, go ahead. I can take it. Uh, gosh. Um, I, I think it's probably worth circling back to on Patsy. You know, I think when she was basically on her deathbed, there were some attempts made to, you know, okay, is there going to be like a, you know, deathbed confession? Like, did you do it? And um, all the way to the end, it was, you know, find who killed my daughter. You know, find who killed my daughter. And um, Lou Smith, actually, my understanding was, was kind of like went there and visited with her at the end. And, you know, she was very much you know please and he you know find who did this and he basically said like i'm gonna do my best and lou you know people criticize him for getting too close to the case and and surely you know if you get emotionally involved in anything it, it can be hard to maintain objectivity that's there's no doubt about that um and it is clear that over time so lou after he resigned from the da's office uh he then continued to just work on this case uh up until the point that he died and and his family has said that he spent thousands of hours on the case i mean he developed a, a spreadsheet with the help of i think his son or son-in-law uh that had you know all kinds of formatting so that he could track suspects and evidence and all these different things and and you know he, he on his deathbed uh then he told his police friends and his his family his kids you know I, this like solve this case for me don't let it go don't let this case die with me keep working on it and so they've continued his efforts by they're going to people that are on his list and asking them to submit to DNA testing. And they're raising money to pay for the DNA testing and then, you know, getting the DNA tested and sending it off and, and trying to, you know, like you said earlier, it's like, okay, exclude everybody we can who could possibly be this person. Right. Uh, and then at least we've narrowed the list down, right? Sure. So it, it's... Uh, it's quite a thing, but my understanding was that he, you know, Lou Smith carried a picture of John Bonet in his wallet, and that he had a uh, like a small Christmas tree he kept in his office to remember her. Wow, that's impressive. And and so John, um, uh, we we talked slightly about him, but he he's moved around a bit. He went to Michigan for quite some time. He ran for office in Michigan. I think uh, it generally was unsuccessful. It's to the point that he was never elected for the offices that he ran for. He has stayed somewhat in the public light and has been a proponent of let's test DNA, let's find who did this, and that sort of thing. That's kind of where Patsy and Burke and John, that, that's where they've all been. And then we're kind of running short on time. We don't want to turn this into a 25-parter, but there are some weird suspects. There are people who have confessed to this crime. 
one person that confessed to this crime, uh, Carr is the last name. I won't get into the rest of it. I don't, I don't want to dive too deep into that, but essentially confessed to it and, and was he was in Thailand at the time, was brought here, extradited, whatever. Well, they did their due diligence and figured out that look, it wasn't possible. His DNA didn't match. And I think there were some other issues with his story. And basically the police concluded that he was somebody who just wanted the attention and was claiming that he did this even though he didn't. So that was interesting. And then there, there's a guy right now who's who's kind of big in the news. There's a lot of guys that are big in the news right now. Are you big in the news? Not yet. I mean, my feet pics on OnlyFans are starting to take off. Well, that's good. So there's this guy, Gary Oliva, who, man, if you could just drum up somebody that you think would fit everything of the person who did this crime... He's a guy that looks really good for it. There's no, he's the Oswald of this case, huh? Man, I don't know. That's that's like that might be disrespectful to Oswald. Here's a guy who's committed child sex offenses and then is currently in prison on child pornography charges. What if I told you that he lived less or, or he lived is is a charitable word. He was staying just over a quarter of a mile from the Ramsey's house when this crime occurred that he according to a classmate of his, had a, a kind of a, not an obsession, but a fascination with or, or passion for painting and paint and had been, you know, painting was kind of a thing of his. He was into painting and painting supplies and all this stuff. Um, and you're thinking, well, that's not really anything. And uh, at the one year anniversary of John Bonet's death, there was a vigil held right there. And um, he was present for that. He actually attended it. And if all that isn't enough to just kind of make you go, well, that's weird. Whenever he was arrested that led to this current incarceration, conviction incarceration, which deals with child pornography, the police department was responding to him basically trespassing. He was in a place he wasn't supposed to be. I think it was a college campus, one of the college buildings there, Boulder. And so they respond, they make contact with him and he's got a book bag. And so they, you know, they, you're not supposed to be here. And they go through his book bag and in his backpack, they find a stun gun and they find a lot of pictures of John Bonet. And they find pictures of her, including leaked pictures from the autopsy and like the kind of pictures you and I wouldn't even want to look at. Nasty. And they find a whole bunch of child pornography. Well, we got any DNA from this cat? Here's a letter he sent his friend from prison while he was in prison. He drew her and he's like said he killed her. He's a good drawer. Yeah. But did he develop the obsession after the fact? Yeah, after, like, he had nothing to do with it, but he is obsessed over the case and would know all these would be carrying the stun gun because he's read that there may have been a stun gun involved and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's all good questions. Um, another, you know, there's, there's so much about this guy that's just wild. On December 27th, 1996... A friend of Gary Oliva, or a you know high school friend, and now maybe more of an associate, said that Gary called him and was very upset, and essentially it had said some really disturbing things. And then once the friend saw that John Bonet had been murdered, he actually called the tip line and said, "Hey, my this guy I know he called me. He's in Boulder. He was really upset and said that he did some things that." sound like maybe he's the guy that did this like you need to go check him out and then like i said he shows up at the candlelight vigil a year later and you'll recall early on in this episode i said that uh there were a number of registered sex offenders that were within a two mile radius radius of the ramsey family he was one of them in 1990 he had been charged with sexually abusing a seven-year-old girl and then he you know had been charged with a bunch of other stuff and he was kind of a transient guy he had spent time 
uh, in the Pacific Northwest, I think up in like Oregon, and then he was down in Boulder. It, it was like a whole thing. But then when he was arrested at the University of Colorado campus I was talking about, that was in December of 2000. And that was when he was found with the stun gun, photographs, news clippings about the case. And he had actually written a poem about her that was titled Ode to John Bonet. I don't want to hear this poem. Oh, I won't read you. Because this bag of shit is disgusting. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, did he kill her? Can't say. Is he a gross, the thing you just said? Abso-freaking-lutely. Yeah, so this is Oliva, dude. I mean, he's bad news all the way around, just to kind of drill down on some of those details. Yeah, it's just bad. He got arrested in Boulder again. So we had the 2000 arrest. Then he gets arrested again in 2016. And again, uh, when he gets arrested this time, he's uh, he's got a ton of John Bonet-related stuff. And so he was caught in 2016, uploading images depicting sexual abuse of children to his personal Gmail account on public Wi-Fi connections across Boulder. A search of his phone yielded approximately 700 images depicting child pornography, and additionally, there were 300 over 300 photos of and relating to John Bonet. Some of these were regular photographs of her that you could just you know Google her name and they'd pop up. Um, but out of those, 19 are images of her autopsy, like from photographs that had been leaked to the press in years prior. Uh, and there were also photographs of what appeared to be some kind of like shrines and, and things that they didn't know whether Olivia had created them or uh, whether, you know, he just found them online and saved the pictures. And he also had contacts in his phone that referenced members of the Ramsey family and several videos paying tribute to her. So there's clearly an obsession, to your point. You know, do, do we, can we say he killed her? I, I can't say he killed her. Is he clearly obsessed with her? Absolutely. Oh, he's beyond obsessed. He's what you call a whack job. For sure. A hundred percent. And then in 2019, it gets a little even more strange because he starts sending letters to his friend, this guy I mentioned earlier, and in these letters, he, he's claiming that he killed her in writing. He says things like, I never loved anyone like I did John Bonet, and yet I let her slip and her head bashed in half and I watched her die. And then he says, it was an accident. Please believe me. She was not like the other kids. What uh, the? Yeah, it, it's there's and then there's some things that he said that are I'm just not. I don't even want to say it. It's gross. So this dude is clearly somebody who should be a person of interest. And you had asked, okay, DNA. What about DNA? Well, there's kind of conflicting reports because there's one report that he's had his DNA has been presented and that he's been cleared that came out earlier in time. And then in a more recent statement from, uh, I believe it was the Boulder, I don't remember if it was the city of Boulder or from the DA's office or the police department, one of those government entities has released a statement that said, essentially, we haven't cleared him and we haven't, we don't know. He's not cleared. He's not, he's not somebody where he's, he's nothing. We're not saying one way or the other. Hmm. So it took a very like, we're not saying anything about his potential as a suspect, which contradicted an earlier statement that seemed to indicate that he had been cleared by DNA. So it sort of leaves it out there. It's like, who knows? You would think if they had collected his DNA, run it, and it was a, a pretty good match, 
that would have been headlines. I mean, I can't imagine, like, the DA's office seems like every everyone other than the DA's office argues that their slant is to prove that it wasn't the Ramsey. So you would think they would be just, you know, on the front page with that right away. And uh, the police, too, because I can't imagine you're going to, let's suppose, and I'm not saying this is true, I'm not saying the DA's office is slanted in favor of the Ramseys or that the police department is slanted against the Ramseys, but if those things are true, as has been alleged by these people, each organization, even the police, you give them the DNA that, you know, that goes with this. I can't believe they're not going to go, oh, wow. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. It's uh, so what makes this even more, I think the reason why this is Mr. Oliva has gotten some some recent attention in this case, particularly uh, is because he is set to be released here um, next year. Get the hell out of here. Yep. His sentence is is coming to an end and he's going to get out. Oh, come on. And so uh, I would imagine or at least hope that there will be some effort to collect some DNA from that guy. If, if, the, if he hasn't been conclusively, you know, eliminated, you know, I would hope that they would they would do that. So, uh, yeah, that's disturbing as hell for sure. And, and so the thing that's most just frustrating about this case is it really is so strange. I mean, you said it a couple of times, right? Like the evidence is so weird. It's very conflicting. Uh, there's certain key points of evidence that would seem to to point you in a direction that well you know was it was it somebody who was in the house well, well this looks like this could help to establish that theory but then there are five other pieces of evidence that just sort of seem to just pull away from that and blow it out of the water everything seems to contradict the other and i, I presume that's why here we are 27 years later and it's still not solved but I would hope that given the advancements in DNA testing, the DNA technology, the genetic genealogy and how that's available now, that the Boulder Police Department, the state of Colorado, that they're really working to try to use some of those advancements and and make some headway in the case. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Now, the Brothers in Crime talking about other brothers in crime. Under the category of big brothers, setting an example for younger brothers, we have John Cassaberry and his twin brothers, 18-year-olds Jaden and Jaquan, which are all charged separately in violent felony cases, including a home invasion. This is quite the web to get through here. It sounds like the kind of thing that happens in Florida. Is this from Florida? No, this is Staten Island. Oh, so Florida of the North. Okay. These things spread over about a nine-month span of whatever kind of silliness they were doing. Got a, a gun arrest where John, this is the older of the brothers, was behind an apartment complex with a thirty-eight revolver and three cartridges. And Only three. That's interesting. Right. Didn't even have the cylinder full. Um, he, he wasn't going to hurt anybody. Those are just warning shots. Maybe. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was out grouse hunting or something. No, that's interesting. It says here he he pled guilty to attempted criminal possession of a weapon. What exactly is that, I wonder? Yeah, see... This is one of my one of my beefs. Obviously, that was a plea deal because it was in exchange for a two year sentence. So what that means is obviously he did possess the weapon and they found him with it. And so you plead guilty to trying to possess the weapon. <laughs> right. You're such a bad criminal. You couldn't even possess it. You just tried to possess it. Yeah, but uh, I'm guessing was he already a, a convicted criminal? I don't know. In New York, is anybody allowed to possess a weapon? Okay, maybe that is the so, deal. But then six months goes by, and then Jaquan gets caught up and accused of shooting two teenagers. Wow. 
and then putting a gun to the head of a, another woman. So he said, don't worry, big brother. You might have only made it that far, but I'll take it the rest of the way. Yeah. Wow. So he shot a 17-year-old in the gut and an 18-year-old in the leg. They both went to the hospital. So I guess during the investigation, one of the victims said that they were standing there. Somebody fired a gun and then fled. So no idea what led to that. Grand jury did not indict him on attempted murder, but instead first-degree assault and a bunch of other stuff. By the way, this is all according to... the hell am I reading? S-Live? I think it's S-I-Live. Staten Island Live. I'll be damned, there is an I in there. You're getting really old. All right, this is all reporting by Staten Island Live that we're telling you about this particular case right here, so... The other twin, who separately and all on his own, decided he was going to go another step further. Because with Jaquan's case, there was no explanation for what exactly caused the shooting or what led up to it, why it happened. At least one of the victims says, I was just standing there and there was shots and bullets coming at me, Mm. and then I saw somebody take off. Yeah. So that doesn't say anything about either of the brothers being involved. And the the first one we talked about, the criminal possession by John, the oldest brother, doesn't sound like Jaden or Jaquan were involved in that. So these guys are out on their own doing their thing. So then Jaden, he gets charged in a home invasion that I guess he was doing as part of some Marines Harbor crew. I mean, is that like a notorious gang or something i think it says mariners harbor crew i'm guessing it's a staten island thing i've never heard of them but they could be a big deal i don't know mariners harbor crew okay sorry i pronounced that wrong but that sounds to me like maybe a clothing store in the mall <laughs> it, it certainly sounds like a line of clothing from like Coles or jc penny i'm gonna go get a sweater from mariners harbor <laughs> right it looks like he admitted that uh February 7th of 23 in the afternoon, they went in the property and demanded that the occupants in there give me the stash. I mean, somebody says give me the stash, you give me the stash. And then they took off in a stolen U-Haul truck. Might not be the fastest getaway, but you fit a lot of stuff in it. It says that they uh, took off down in a U-Haul box truck with about 500 bucks in cash, an iPhone, and two pair of sneakers. It seems like you wouldn't need a U-Haul to fit all that, but I guess they just want to be extra sure that they could all make it okay. But they're rolling in their U-Haul, and I can imagine they probably didn't get very far before they got caught. So he is one of a number of individuals that, that was involved in that nonsense. Three have been arrested, and one of those is a 17-year-old, and there's supposedly a fourth on the loose. Jaden's looking at first-degree burglary with a firearm, first-degree robbery, and criminal possession of a firearm. So he's matching big bro here. Yeah, and I noted that his bail was set at 250000 cash, or 750000 bond, which seems like a pretty steep amount to me. So they're taking this pretty seriously up there. Wow, yeah, that is expensive. But, I guess before that... Wait, so you're saying this wasn't the first time he had a little tussle with the law? Well, no, it doesn't look like this was Jaden's first run-in, because uh, a couple weeks before that, the police say that he was in the back of uh, some kind of, like, uh, rideshare vehicle. I assume that's what this means. It's, so he was in an Uber XL. Something, it says livery or livery. I don't know, was it hauling livestock or what do you think that means? Is that a taxi cab or something? It's got to be a vehicle for hire. I'm going to pull the definition up and read it to you. 
This is going to be education for everybody. The term describes distinctive colors and patterns used consistently on certain vehicles to make them more distinguishable, conspicuous, and recognizable on the roads. That doesn't help me one bit. So when I hear that word, I think of like, you know how race cars, sometimes they'll change the way the car looks for like a race. They'll do like a special thing. They'll change the scheme. They refer to that as the the livery. I have no idea. A livery vehicle or livery, I don't know the pronunciation, remains a legal term of art in the U.S. and Canada for a vehicle for hire, such as a taxi cab or chauffeur limousine, but excluding a rented vehicle driven by the renter. So it's not a rental car. Right. It's like an Uber, right? Yeah, or like yeah, a chauffeur. Yeah, taxi cab or chauffeur. Um, yeah, okay. So that's what I was thinking. Well, that's what I said. Yeah. You said it had something to do with stickers on race cars or something. <laughs> well, that's the way that term's used, too. So why couldn't they just say an Uber or a Lyft or whatever it was? A racing livery is the specific paint scheme and sticker design used in motorsport on vehicles in order to attract sponsorship and to advertise sponsors as well as identify vehicles. Okay, well, Jaden wasn't trying to get a sponsorship. He's trying to get that bag. And that's exactly what he did because he shoved an older female driver and then he snatched her purse. But then he tells the popo that he tossed it. The woman says she lost an EBT card, her license, insurance cards, a bank card, and some cash in the ordeal. But he told police there's a lot of makeup in that purse, so I tossed it. So this tells us something. Please. He got something though, right? There was some money in the bag, yeah. He only got about 40 bucks. Well, that's two cheeseburgers. And she died lost probably about $400 of makeup in there. And the EBT card. Because he threw it away. The EBT card, she got to go back to the MVA and deal with her license again. Uh, the aggravation of that alone is, is worth a lot. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, he shoved this old lady who's out. I mean, she's doing Uber and Lyft to pay the bills. And some punk's going to come in and shove her, take her purse, done took all her makeup, Mm. an older woman's purse, her whole life's in there. That's true. Shout out to the gig workers, right? She's just trying to make a dollar, and here he is. Probably got a grandbaby pictures in there. Beating up on an Uber driver. You know she's got Kleenex and some hard candies. Probably a nice air freshener, too. And she's got to try and reassemble that whole collection, because this little punk and you only get $40 out of it. And you should point out that she was driving a 2006 Honda Odyssey, so it's not like she's rolling a, a Lamborghini Urus or whatever. No, that's a working whip right there. An 06 Odyssey. That's the minivan thing, ain't it? Hard to believe that's 17 years old now. So all these brothers are incarcerated or headed to court on all different crimes. They didn't even do their stuff together. They went in their own direction. Yeah, just independently criming. Out there criming, criming hard, doing their thing. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.